Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Deborah Chalinor is a best-selling historical novelist whose books consistently rank in New Zealand's top five for fiction, many of them making it to number one. Her latest book, The Jacaranda House, is her 17th, and it's a story of mothers and daughters, dark secrets, and the healing power of love set in the King's Cross Sydney club scene of the 1960s. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Deborah talks about how she was discovered by her publisher because she wrote an entertaining PhD thesis and why she loves her flawed characters. We've got three ebook copies of the new book, The Jacaranda House, to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on the Joys of Binge Reading website or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. You'll find links to Deborah's books and website there too. And while you're there, leave us a comment or a suggestion. We love to hear from our listeners. We endeavour to get back to everyone who contacts us. But now, here's Deborah. Hello there, Deborah, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Look, I always like to start with this question because it's one that readers love to know the answer to. Just how did you start with your fiction writing? We'll, we'll, we'll cover the fact that you were already doing a lot of academic writing, but how did you start in fiction? Was there some sort of once upon a time moment when you thought, I really must do fiction or I won't have realised what I want to do in life? I suppose it started really when I was doing my PhD thesis and my supervisor, the late, great Laurie Barber, told me that it was actually readable and quite entertaining, which is apparently rare for a PhD thesis. And then my thesis was published as a book with some modifications with the really boring bits taken out. And that turned out to be quite successful and got to number four on the New Zealand nonfiction list. And after that, I thought, hmm, maybe I can do fiction. So I got myself an agent who at that time was Glenis Bean. And with her, I got a contract with HarperCollins New Zealand. And that turned out to be the three book series, Children of War. And away I went, really. That's fantastic. As you've mentioned that first book, let's talk about it just now. And that's that was Grey Ghosts, wasn't it? It yeah. was research you did into the experiences of New Zealand vets in the Vietnam War. What did you find from when you wrote that book? What were your conclusions or discoveries? My thesis, when I went into that piece of research, I expected to find that all veterans had been badly psychologically affected by that war. And that's not what I found. I found that some had and some hadn't. So that was an interesting finding. But I found that those who had been badly impacted were really badly impacted and those that hadn't been weren't or else they were and they weren't telling me. So that, but that it, it all was a life changing event for all of them, one way or another. That's interesting. And was there any way that you could measure 
what it might have been that made the difference between whether they were badly impacted or not? Was it simply the experiences they had or was it something else in the environment? It's possibly related to whether they were lifelong regular soldiers or they signed up for a shorter period. All our soldiers were regular force. They were all very well trained and I'm convinced of that. Some soldiers signed up for a shorter period. Some were in the army for 30 years. I think the longer-term soldiers who served, you know, up to 30 years, I think the longer they stayed in the army afterwards, possibly the less the impact. Mm -hmm. But I'm a bit hesitant at saying that because I'm not a soldier. I didn't go to Vietnam. I'm just an observer. It doesn't make me an expert. Yeah, yeah. So after that great beginning, really, it's a wonderful compliment to be told that your thesis is really entertaining. You've become a number one best-selling author and you've just published your 17th historical novel. So that one is called The Jacaranda House. It's set in Sydney in the 1960s. And I'm thinking that this might be the most recent time frame that you've written in with your historical novels. Would that be right? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's set in 1964, so it is the most recent time frame. It's, that's historical for me because I was only, I don't know, four or five, so I can't quite remember it. So for me, I'm still doing, I'm doing research for that period. The book that comes after it, which I'm writing now, is set in 69.70, and that will be the very last book I write because I can remember that. And if I can remember it, to me, it's not history. I understand. But do you mean the last book altogether or just in that series? No, just in the series. Oh, yeah. But it'll be the, be the most recent historical book I will write. Yes, yes. It's interesting yeah. to me. I, mean, I actually did go to King's Cross at that time because I'm older than you. And there were a lot, it was the time when the Americans were there in great numbers because. King's Cross was a rest and recreation, um, well, Sydney was a rest and rest recreation place for the soldiers that were in Vietnam. And it's just interesting to me that that Vietnam theme still comes through. You make reference to it in the book, don't you? Yeah, I know. And that's, that's deliberate because I picked 64 for the Jacaranda House because it's, to me, it was the height of King's Cross, the height of its glamour before it started to slide down and become sort of tarnished when the heroine came in with the American soldiers mm -hmm. and, and you know, the, the gloss sort of came off and it got all a bit seamy and grotty. At, at the time of the Jacaranda House, it really spectacular stage shows and, and you know, so that's, that's sort of why I picked that time period. But, you know, by the end of that decade, it, things were getting a little bit shabby in the cross. Yes. You tackle a sensitive and topical issue in the story as well. Your set of characters include a transgender couple who are working in the King's Cross nightclub scene. And there's also a very strong um, underlying theme of estranged mother and daughter relationships. Was it difficult to research this topic? Well, no, and yes, the the transgender thing 
I forgot time I'll tell you a little story about that. I decided because I plan my books years ahead and, I don't know, about four years ago I, I was in Sydney and I decided I need to interview some transgender girls who were working in the cross. So I walked down Oxford Street to the Stonewall Hotel, which is an LGBT hangout, and I asked various people if they would like to be interviewed for this book and got told to F off by a few people. And eventually I met a couple of girls who I will call Chloe and Zoe, and they said they would come back to my hotel with me, which was on she was on hide or something. And we went back to my hotel, which is quite flash, and they're about seven feet tall, these girls, and they're perspex heels with huge hair. And we're walking across the foyer of the hotel, and we got the filthiest look from the concierge, but I thought, I don't care. I've paid for my room. I can do what I like in it. And we hopped in the lifts and went up, and we were chatting away, having cups of tea. There's a knock on the door, and it's the concierge saying, excuse me, madam, are you all right? Yes, I'm fine, thank you. And I, so I ordered hot chips, room service hot chips for all of us. And we spent about three hours, the three of us, just talking about what it was like being transgender. And it was the most, one of the most amazing discussions I've ever had. And out of that came a lot of the information that I used for the two characters in the book, Rhoda and Star, it really was extraordinary. They were the most amazing people. And I'm never, ever going to forget that, apart from the concierge's interruption. So that was an amazing learning experience for me, and it was so generous of those two women. It really was. Yes. Do you think the concierge was somehow concerned for your safety or...? Well, he, I think he was mm. in a strange sort of way. Like I thought, what is this stupid old woman doing taking two transgender people to her room? She's, I think he assumed I was going to be robbed or done over or something, yes. but mm. I, I didn't think so. No. So in a way it was nice of him, but sort of rude as well to assume that that was going to happen. Yes, it says something about the, the whole social context, doesn't it? There were some remarkable yeah. personalities in the cross during those years, and some of them do make their way into the book. Uh, I'm thinking of yeah. The Witch, yeah. for example. But do, do you have any favourites yeah. from that, from your research of that time? Well, I did quite a lot of research on Rosalind Norton, and I think she was an amazing woman. Like she, the Witch of the Cross, she's a New Zealander, and to have stuck to her guns, believing what she believed her entire life, what she did until she died in her early 70s, and not deviated from her beliefs, and just gone on and on with it and done her art against all the dislike and derision she received for it and the court cases and the publicity just stuck with it as as extraordinary especially during those years Mm, mm, yeah yeah I was amazed to see in the end notes to the book that you wrote it in four months now it's a big book it tells a big story 
I would imagine that that would only be possible when you've already written 16 books before it, is it? Well, normally I'd say it's a result of rubbish time management, only having four months left to write it in. But it doesn't it doesn't actually take that long to write a book because in advance I do really quite detailed outlines. So I've got an outline to work on. So that takes out mistakes. You know, I never go off at a tangent and have to go back and fix something. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of what I call macro research in advance. So I've already done that in advance. In this case, my father was really sick. So I had to spend a lot of time looking after him, so I didn't have a lot of time to write it anyway. Plus this is basically the third book in what is a core tet. So I knew a lot of the characters anyway. Like I knew Polly, I knew Sunny Manaya, I knew Afi Manaya. It's not a lot of characters for me. I need to develop. I didn't know Rhoda and Star and I didn't know a couple of the others. But, I mean, that's the beauty of series. You don't have to get to know all your characters with every new book. So, and the the writer the writing doesn't actually take that long as long as I get my bum on my seat in my office. Yes, it's it's research, it's the planning that takes the time. Yes, you've mentioned that there's going to be another book following in this series. Who who are the characters going to be in that one? Do we know any of them yet, or are they completely new set? No, you do know them. That they're children at the moment, and they were children. The children in the last book, they're children of. Oh, I've forgotten their names. They played little tiny parts. They're children in the last book. Yes. Of yes, yeah, so they've, they've grown up. There's Donna, who's the sister of Ellie. Yes. Who's Sonny's wife? She's a nurse. She goes to Vietnam. The book is set in Vietnam and New Zealand in 6970. And there's Sam Apanui, who is the son of Tuda. And there's Eddie Irwin, who's the son of Wiki Irwin. They both go to Vietnam and they're only children in this book and little children in the previous book. And there's the daughter of Anna and David, who's Leonard. And their child, Joe, goes to Vietnam as an entertainer. Oh, great. So, so it all ties and weaves in, in a big fat plait. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Look, you've amassed a great backlist of historical fiction. We've mentioned, of course, that this is the 17th historical fiction book you've written. Your first trilogy, Children of War, was set in New Zealand. And then you went yeah. on and did the Smuggler's Wives series and the Convict Girls series that was the Sydney-based one. You obviously yeah. do love creating whole communities of characters. And from what you've said with this book, that's very much in evidence, isn't it? I think, well, I enjoy writing series because I, I do get fond of my characters and it's nice to not have to let them go with every book. And it is, I find it easier because I don't have to come up with a whole set of new ones with every, you know, every book that I write. And it's, it's a bit lazy, really, because it's, a, it's less work. I think it's less work. And you can just pick up a story from the last. I mean, it's, it's, there's one long story arc that goes over each series with, with smaller story arcs in each book. 
Yes. And I find it quite exciting. It's quite exciting planning that out in advance. And also readers can really emotionally invest in the characters if they're with them through a series. And, and it's fun. It's fun connecting. It's my goal to somehow connect every book I've ever written. Oh, wow, that's interesting. I saw, I was really impressed because I see that right at the very beginning with Children of War, you said that you saw it as a trilogy right from the beginning. It was always going to be a trilogy. Um, that seems to be quite brave yeah. when you're just starting out on your very first book. What do you think gave you that sort of sense of confidence? I don't know, I think it might have been arrogance, actually, not confidence. <laughs> I wanted the three wars, the Boer War, the First World War and the Second World War, are quite close together. And, you know, we're really, well, we were, not so much anymore, really our military, what we thought was our military prowess was really important to us as a nation. You know, we, we decided we were forged as a nation at Anzac Cove and all this sort of thing, which which is a a mythology I'm not don't really buy into. I, I think our nation was forged at home, not somewhere else in the world. But I, I wanted to have a have a have a, a look at that. And so I I, I wanted to, to pull that one apart. And like I, I don't think wars are particularly won in foreign fields. I, th- I think wars are won at home by the yeah, soldiers go away and fight, but if there's nothing to come home to, where's the victory? I mean, that's one side of it. But I mean, we had our own wars here in New Zealand, didn't we? Yes, of course we did. We had the New Zealand wars. I mean, that's that's where our nation was forged, and we're still we still we still haven't got the balance right from those. We still haven't we still haven't got. We haven't sorted out the treaty and all that sort of thing. No, no, we haven't. haven't. It's interesting. I I feel that your background as a social historian is coming through here and also that aspect that in a lot of the earlier histories, women's role in things was very much overlooked or underestimated. And there's a sense in your stories that you're you're writing that normally too. Yes, well, it used used to be that men wrote history, so you got men's history, you know. You got history written by men, about men, and it was nearly always white men. So that's the history, white white men who were victors, and that's the history that you got. That's the history that you read, Mm -hmm. and that was the history that was published. But that isn't all the history, you know. History... There isn't one history. There's never one history. There are thousands of histories, depending on who you are. There's not one version of history. Now, that's a really hard lesson to learn. Mm. There are loads of versions of history, and they all add up to make a universal experience. And, you know, there is not one history. It drives me mental when people say, no, this is what happened in the past, because it Yes, it might be from your point of view, but not from hundreds of other people's points of view. Mm. The Convict Wives series, which begins with Behind the Sun, you've said that there was a deeply personal motivator behind those books. And I wondered if you'd like to elaborate on that for our readers. 
Well, yes. Um, my great times five grandmother, whose name is Mary Ann Anstey, she was a convict. She was transported on the Lady Julian, which was part of the Second Fleet, and that ship was also known as the Floating Brothel, and it arrived in Port Jackson, Australia, in June in 1790. And she married my great times five grandfather, William Stanley, who was a Marine on HMS Sirius, the first fleet, which arrived in Port Jackson in 1788. So I don't know if Mary Ann actually was a prostitute, either in England or on Lady Julian. Um, she was transported for seven years for nicking two silk handkerchiefs from the shop of George Stubbs in Birmingham. So she was my starting point for those books. And she morphed and splintered into Friday Wolf and Harry Clark, Sarah Morgan and Rachel Winter, the four main characters of those books. Mm-hmm. I wanted to look at what life would have been like for convict women in Sydney and bring that story to life. Though my actual ancestors, they married and I think they went to Norfolk Island for quite a while, not because they had done more crimes in Australia because that's where you went if you misbehaved in Australia, Norfolk Island. I think they went there and had some business. But my story is set 40 years after my great time, five grandparents' time. And also my story was set after the female factory at Parramatta had been established. So I really wanted to have a look at that. So that's my personal connection. Plus I had quite a lot of other male ancestors who were transported. It's quite a criminal family, my family, but, you know, not just me. <laughs> so, that yeah, that's my personal connection. All of your books have reached the top five in the New Zealand fiction bestseller list. Six of them have reached number one. You consistently get great reviews and you've been compared to people like Philippa Gregory, Australia's answer to Philippa Gregory, I think, the Brisbane Times, Said, or ask Kate Furnival, who is another very well thought of historical writer. I wonder what keeps you going now? What mountains are left to climb? And do you see yourself, you know, getting to book 30? Well, the, the bestseller list thing, I, I, can't, I can't get on the New Zealand best, bestseller list anymore because I'm published by HarperCollins Australia. So now I'm an international writer, apparently. So I have to get to the top of the international bestseller list. So that's another little mountain that to aim for. So it's a little bit annoying. So that's a mountain. But there's always new mountains. The biggest mountain is telling essentially the same story over and over again, which is what all writers do, I think, in new and interesting ways that readers find satisfying. But, you know, that's that's possible. And the way to do that, in my opinion, is to keep creating appealing and flawed characters. I mean, you can't, I, th- I think the beauty of writing characters is you have to make them flawed. That's, that's a tip for new writers. Don't write perfect characters because no one wants to read perfect characters. Make them flawed. Make them people you can cheer for, you know. So, yes, there's mountains, and yes, yes, there will be book 30, 
And hopefully there'll be book 40. Well, I don't know if there'll be book 50. I'm not that young anymore. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, in 2018, you were made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for your services to literature and history. So you've already got official recognition for your work. Did, did that come as a surprise to you? Yeah, I nearly died when I when I got the letter from the Department of PM or wherever it came from. I, I had no idea what it was. I really, really never, ever thought that my commercial popular fiction would be recognised at that level, not in New Zealand. I really didn't because, you know, we just don't recognise commercial fiction here. So it was really exciting. And, yeah, I was really thrilled. Yeah, and they called it literature. So, I mean, I know I don't think there's anything to be sort of um, shamed about as as being commercial fiction. In fact, I think it's really important to write good commercial fiction that lots of people are going to read. But they did call it literature, Deborah, so you you can (laughs) take take, take that and have a feather in your hat as well. Yes, uh, yes, I did feel a little tiny bit of that, I must admit. Yes. That's lovely. It was was very satisfying. Especially, as you say on your website, that you started out studying English at university and you dropped out because you kept failing at it. And and now you've written 17 best-selling novels. It's pretty amazing. What made you change your mind about English? I did keep failing. I just couldn't get the hang of it. It was boring and I lost interest. You know, I just, I didn't care about the hidden meanings in writers' imagery and that sort of thing. I just wanted to read their books. So, you know, I didn't want to pull it apart. It sounds like you almost failed at writing the sort of essays that that they wanted written more than anything else. I I did. I I got D's. so, So clearly I'm a storyteller. I'm not an analyst so that, that's what I do that's all I do I tell stories so I changed the history because at the time it seemed more straightforward and defined but you know it really isn't history but at the, at the time I thought it was yeah. but I've never regretted changing and that's not to denigrate creative writing degrees or anything like that I don't at all but you know I've, I've never regretted it yeah Look, turning to Deborah as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, um, I like us to be able to inspire people with books that they might like to take up or, or have a look at that they haven't heard of. What do you like to binge read and what recommendations would you have for listeners? Well, I do binge read and I binge read three or four books a week, but it's mostly non-fiction mm. and Call me boring, but I read history and politics and sociology and economics because it does inform my views of the world, which I find help me when I'm writing historical fiction. I don't read a lot of fiction, but when I do, my favourite writers are Mark Billingham and Stuart McBride, who are British crime writers quite like crime. Stuart McBride is a little bit splattery, but, you know, I can live with that. I like Phil Rickman for slightly supernatural suspense. He does the Merrily Watkins series. I really like Laurie Graham. She writes historical fiction. She's written books like The Importance of Being Kennedy and... Everything else dropped out of my mind right now. But if you Google her, she's done some fantastic historical fictions and she's really witty and clever. 
Well, I noticed she'd just been dropped by her publisher, Quirkus, recently, and I've, I saw that and I thought, oh, a bit of up my game. She's getting dropped by her publisher. And I was reading Kate Atkinson religiously, and then I, until I read A God in Ruins, and I was so upset at the ending of that. Have you read that one? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. Well, I won't, I won't say what the ending is in case readers want, listeners want to read it. Yeah. But she played a mean trick at the end of it, and I was so upset by it. I said, I'm never, ever going to read her stuff ever again. But I did. I've just read a book by her called Big Sky, which is one of her books from the Brody Jackson series, Mm -hmm. which is her series about a private detective. That was pretty good. But, yeah, she writes historical fiction too. But, my God, I was upset by Garden Ruins, which is something I shouldn't say about another writer, but I, I just did it. So, yeah, so I do read a bit of... Not not a lot of historical fiction, but a bit because I'm I'm a bit worried I'm accidentally going to plagiarise someone. Mm. Yeah. Mm. With Kate, I, I guess it's I a bit of a reminder to you that readers can have very strong reactions to endings. Yeah, I was really emotionally invested in a character, and she did a she employed a literary device. And I found it so upsetting. Yeah. I thought, that's not, that's, you can't do that to readers. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, I think it won an award for something, so. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I'm not at all saying this happens with Kate, but I do know some of the authors that you really love and you follow, and then after they've written a lot of books, I won't mention any names, but, you start to feel as if their editors get to be very, well, either complacent or slack, but sometimes some big names with later books, you start to feel, oh, my gosh, this would have really benefited from a slightly more stringent edit. It's a, it's a feeling that they let them just go on and on because they're a big name. I don't know. I've found that two yeah. or three times, and I've thought, oh, I wish the editor had just exercised more judgment here, you know. Yes, well, they will sell. They're going to sell anyway because they're such a popular and beloved name. So Yeah, that's right. Look, circling around, we we are sort of coming to the end of our time together now. So circling around and looking back down the tunnel of time, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, would you change anything? And if so, what? I don't know if I would change much because it's all worked out quite well. I... Might have started earlier, but because I didn't really, start, I didn't start writing really till I was forty. But maybe I wasn't supposed to. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't have the emotional experience to be able to do it. No, no, because a, a lot of my my characters, my characters live a lot of life in my books, and maybe I hadn't until then. So mm. maybe maybe it just wasn't time. Yes, your characters, I mean, that's another theme that runs through them. A lot of your characters are people on the lower half of society, the ones who are struggling or haven't had the advantages or who have had really things go against them, aren't they? You you have a soft spot for the 
the battler and the loser. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yes, because I mean, all all major characters in books, I think, have to have a a battle to fight. Otherwise, they're just boring, and you don't you don't invest in them. So, so yeah, they've got to go through some amount of fire to come out the other side. Yeah. Otherwise, that they're just they're emotionally drab, and you don't care about them. So. There is a social justice aspect too, too. I sort of feel that that you are making a point about some of the conditions that people had to face. Yeah, particularly with your convict yeah. relations, maybe. Yes, I mean to be transported for stealing two handkerchiefs is unreal today, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it does seem a little bit unrealistic. Mm. So what is next for Deborah the writer? You've mentioned the follow-up to the Jacaranda house. Has that got a title yet? Well, it had one. It was going to be called Sisters of Mercy, but that's a bit, a bit I don't know if I should say this or not, a bit Catholic church, and that might, connotations relating to the Catholic church might not be, don't know if we want a Catholic church name for my next book because of, paedophilism, basically. Yeah, and maybe it wouldn't accurately reflect it anyway because they're not actually in any sort of religious order, are they? No, they're not. They're just, it's two sisters who are going to Vietnam, mm, so mm. it was just a brown word. So but might fiddle with it and keep the sisters in and just, you know, twist it around somehow. But that's, that's the working title. It's probably not going to be the actual title. Sure, and when's that one due out? Not till October next year, but it has to be delivered by the end of this year. But that's okay. I'm partway through. I'll, I'll belt it out in the next couple of months. So this will be the last in this series. Have you got any thoughts about new series after that? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking at a series next. I'm looking at maybe some spin-off books from the Convict Girls series because in one of the Convict Girls books, Aria who became Friday's partner, she's the um, Māori woman, her uncle's head was stolen by an ethnologist and sent to England. I'm thinking about a story where Aria and Friday and maybe Sarah go to England and steal it back. That's a maybe I haven't finished with the story around Harry and Rachel's ghost, or is it just is she just Rachel's imagination? Because that was never made clear in the series. I'm thinking about something around that, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure about a story set in 1860 Sydney, which is based around Rookwood Cemetery, which opened in 1867, which is that huge cemetery out near Leichhardt. It's the biggest one in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. And the the funeral train from Central Station and undertakers and mourning rituals and maybe maybe resurrectionist. I don't know because I'm absolutely fascinated. This is this is what a ghoul I am. I'm fascinated by all that sort of nineteenth century mourning rituals and all that sort of thing. I've got a relation who's buried in Rookwood. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. In fact, I tried to find his um, 
records, but I think his records don't seem to be there, but he, he definitely was buried there. He was working in a hospital in Sydney at the time that he died, yeah, yeah. Every time I go to Sydney, I'll go out there and have a good poke around. I, I don't know what, it just fascinates me, the whole thing and the fact that there was an actual train, yes. funeral train with the funeral platform, which which has been done up and it's and it's at Central. And so that's that's probably definitely going to be a go of that one. So is that train still on display somewhere? No, the train's not, but the platform is there. Oh. It's just on your left. You get as you go into central mm-hmm. on the train. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful piece of art, and it was designed by a woman, a, a woman architect. Oh, fantastic! And is the, is the is the cemetery? It's not still functioning as a cemetery. Yeah, oh, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a, mil, a million souls in it now. Oh, gosh, mm. oh, that sounds fascinating. Very fascinating. <laughs> mm. So do you like interacting with your readers? And, and if so, where can they find you, particularly online at the moment? Because a lot of our listeners are not in New Zealand. And also with COVID, the movement of things is still a little bit proscribed, particularly in Australia. So how can readers interconnect with you? Well, I've got a, a, a book, a Facebook books page, which is www.facebook.com slash Deborah Chalinor books slash, and I post on that once a week, most weeks, occasionally I forget. Good, and so people can reach you through there. Yeah, it's it's not a like a friend's page, it's it's a books page, and I post every week, and I always reply. I always, if someone posts, I'll always reply. I've got a, a website, debrachalinor.com, I have to say it's a little bit out of date. I have to do something about that. You often, I mean, I've noticed in the past that you do quite vigorous book touring. You you go to libraries and and so forth. Are you able to do that this time with this book? Is anything like that planned? No, not this year because, well, it's been a bit, the COVID sort of squashed that. Yes. Because this book was supposed to be out in April and then it got, there were no shops open in April. So then it got put off till August and we didn't know what the state of play was going to be with moving around the country. So there's no tour this year. No. And and then what with Bauer Media going down, mm. you know, mm. and no magazines being available. So no no tour this year. Yeah. Yes, those are all blows to the to the local cultural life, but hopefully they still might be resurrected. We'll see. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Well, Deborah, look, it's been great talking. We have really come to the end of our time together, but thank you so much and congratulations on such a fantastic career. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at 
caudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.